Happy August, listeners. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with Grant Faulkner, as always. And I think I can speak for a lot of folks when I say that it feels like we're holding our collective breath here as we look toward an uncertain fall. And then we're taking a break during the month of August, but we're seeing this season through by revisiting our favorite episodes from the past. Yeah, that's right, Brooke. And and I like just the uh, theme of revisiting in general as a way to to sort of relearn and remind yourself of what was good. And it was super fun to go back and re-listen to some of those interviews and really amazing to remember all the nuggets of insight and wisdom our guests have offered up. So we're rolling out our A plus August, partnering up uh, some of the best of the best by genre. Yeah, I love that we're doing this because it also gives our listeners an opportunity to think about genre generally, what you're writing, of course. And I hope also that this podcast inspires reading. And I'm so immersed in the land of memoir. And then if I'm not reading memoir, I'm reading fiction. And so many of our guests have prompted me to read outside my lanes. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I most appreciate about doing this podcast is how we're exposed to other genres, processes, ways of thinking about writing. You know, it makes me not just a better writer, but a better person. And perhaps that's what we should be striving for, actually, as we enter into our new fourth season together on Right Minded. I love that idea, Grant. Better readers, better humans. And better extraterrestrials. That's a bumper (laughs) sticker, Brooke. Right-minded, better readers, better humans, better extraterrestrials. Totally. Yes, on the bumper stickers. And so while we go get those printed up, enjoy your August and enjoy today's mashup A plus August episode. I am super excited to welcome today's guest, Hugh Howie, who is a five-time NaNoWriMo participant who still can't believe he ever wrote a novel, but his works have become New York Times bestsellers, and they've been translated into over 40 languages, and they've sold millions of copies around the world. And four of his books are currently being adapted for film or television, including Wool, Sand, and Beacon 23, so I hope we see those soon. And all three of these were written in the month of November, which is huge. Congratulations, Hugh, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And Hugh, you know, I want to pick up on that NaNoWriMo thread. Um, You have one of the more interesting NaNoWriMo stories. And I'm thinking about the year 2011 in particular. And I want to read what you wrote in a NaNoWriMo blog post to take you back to that time. You wrote, nobody has ever been so well prepared for National Novel Writing Month success as I was in 2011. It was my third NaNoWriMo in a row. The previous two years had been wonderful successes. This time was going to be even better. I was actually going in with confidence and a game plan. For the first time ever, I'd actually outlined what I was going to write. I was chomping at the bit to get started, but then October happened. So I was wondering if you could tell us what happened that October and how it changed your plans. Well, what a cliffhanger. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I I, uh, was working on the uh, fourth in a series of books, young adults, uh, space opera books. And having written the third, I knew where the characters were going and what they were doing. And so I had a um, really established plan for what I was going to write for the first time. And then that October, a short story that I'd written the month before called Wool just started going viral. And um, my sales were like doubling every day. And I was watching this happen, you know, on my uh, KDP dashboard at the time. And I'd never seen anything of mine, um, sell like this. 
and I'm, I, I was used to like selling maybe a hundred copies of a, a book in a month. And this was, um, on pace to do, uh, over a thousand and then, uh, 3000, the, the next month. And everyone was asking for more in this story, except that I know it's a bit of a spoiler for the first part of wool, but most of the characters at the end of the story are dead. And so I had no characters to write with. I had nothing planned after that, uh, the termination of that story. And yet here was the, the first time in my like very young writing career that actually had demand and people asking for more of something. So I dropped what I'd planned for, uh, and this was, this happened October 31st that I was watching my sales tick over like 3000 copies for the month. And I thought, um, or might've been, it might've been more than that. But anyway, laying in bed that night, I was like, I can't wake up tomorrow and start writing the fourth book in this trilogy that no one's discovered yet. I need to strike while the iron is hot. And so I've, I went to sleep that night thinking about how I was going to turn this short story into a novel and woke up the next, uh, morning as unprepared as you could possibly be for a national novel writing month. And that month of writing really changed my life. It's the the book that became my first New York times bestseller and led to, you know, getting an agent and film deals and all kinds of other opportunities, quitting my day job, writing full time, um, eventually sailing around the world that month. And that, that, uh, Halloween Eve were not what I thought was going to happen that uh, that November, and boy, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. It's fascinating, Hugh, because you talked about being so prepared and having outlined for the first time, and then I'm guessing you woke up, as you said, on November 1 and kind of scrapped that plan and went with something new. So I'm curious about how you are today. Now are you a planner, or do you pants or plants, as many in the NaNoWriMo community say? Yeah, I like the I like the the idea that it's a combo. I've never understood the the distinction between uh, plotting and pantsing because when you write an outline, you're doing it by the seat of your pants. It's coming um, from nowhere. It's uh, it's an ex nihilo act of creation. And when you're um, uh, writing by the seat of your pants, you have to have some kind of outline in your mind just from all the stories that you've absorbed over the years, you know what a character arc looks like, you know what a hero's journey looks like, you know how the story's going to have a beginning, middle, and end. So there's always an outline and you're always writing by the seat of your pants. It's just a, a question of which direction we lean more that we consider it one, one more than the other. But um, my favorite way of writing is to have lived with a story in my mind for months or years. And so I feel like I know the characters in the world before I sit down to write it. And that's what I've had for almost any book that I write. And that's what I had in the past. With Wool, I, I had dreamed about this world a little bit, but I did not have the bigger story. What I really credit NaNoWriMo with doing is not giving me any excuse to just sit and toy with an outline or write character descriptions and any of that stuff. Like you have to write your 1,700 words a day. So while I was thinking about the story, I had to just start on that first page and and um, move that blinking cursor and that's what NaNoWriMo has done for me over the years, uh, over and over again, is like forced me to get words on on the paper. Hugh, that's a great segue into my next question, because in the blog post that I earlier read from, you also wrote, I can say with confidence that I wouldn't have written the same books if I'd written them any other way. The compressed nature of a nano novel makes for a tighter plot. It reinforces the importance of not taking a day off. 
NaNoWriMo isn't a writing exercise for me. It trained me to be a pro. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how NaNoWriMo trained you to be a pro and then how it makes for a tighter plot or how writing for quantity can actually lead to quality. I think some people don't exactly trust that. It's really weird that we that we make that distinction between quality or quantity when I've always found they, they go together. Um, uh, this isn't, you know, we're not talking writing nonfiction where you have to spend years researching, but I, I think even then you'd benefit from big writing sessions just to keep the prose tight. If you think about the books that you really love reading, you don't read them over a two-year period. You, They're the ones that, that keep you up late at night and that you read for hours at a time and you just blast through them. And, you know, I found that my skills as a writer rely heavily on my history as a reader. And that means that when I, when I fall into a really good writing routine, I'm almost reading what I'm writing as I'm writing it. And uh, the typos go way up because you don't stop and mess with any of that stuff. You just keep pouring ahead. And the same probably happens when you're, you know, really into a book and reading it. You probably misread some stuff and skip over some things. But that addiction to your story and that inability to, to set it aside and wanting to start first thing in the morning and, and write till late at night, that's a sign that you're in the middle of writing a good story, just like those kind of reading signals are a sign that you're reading a great story. And I also find that when I have these monster sessions, you know, while there might be a few typos, there, there's a lot less editing to do because the flow from one part to another uh, stays the same. You're just in the same mindset. You're in the same you know, chemical state, the same mentality as you're pouring all these words down. And when you start and stop and you're like, I'm just going to write a paragraph or write a sentence here, write a sentence there. It's been too long since you've read what has come before. And uh, so I, I just find uh, I can tell when I'm when I'm going back through my books, the parts that I'm reading that I had a really productive day are the parts that also read the best. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for inspiring other NaNoWriMo participants. And to send our writers off with some wind in their sails this week, what's your favorite piece of writing advice? Oh, I think, uh, well, I love that quote about, um, you know, a rough draft is perfect because it exists. My, my number one writing advice is to not stop until you get to the end. Um, just don't spend any time revising that first chapter. Don't worry if you've changed the gender or name or the point of view of your story. Change things on the fly and just keep going uh, and wait until you get to the end to even know what your story's about or what it needs. So um, yeah, power forward, uh, lay down sentences. I think that's the, the thing that got me through my first book and continues to, to drive my productivity today. Great advice, Hugh. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm thrilled to introduce today's special guest, Victoria Schwab, who also goes by V.E. Schwab. Um, I'm thrilled because she's a brilliant fantasy writer and is super popular among the NaNoWriMo community. Victoria is lucky to split her time between three different wonderful places. Nashville, where she grew up, rural France, where she is right now in a stone cottage, and Edinburgh, where she says she buried her heart. Among her favorite things are black breakfast tea, which shouldn't be, she says, confused with Earl Grey, which 
tastes like my grandmother's old clothes steeped in warm water. I don't know if I'll ever be able to have uh, an Earl Grey tea uh, again and not think of that. I know she's written a, a bevy of books. She goes by Victoria for her YA or middle grade books, which include uh, the Monsters of Verity series and the City of Ghosts series. And then if she's writing adult books, she goes by V.E. And her adult fiction includes the Shades of Magic series. So thanks so much for joining us, Victoria. Yeah, yeah. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Victoria, on your website, you have the tagline, for those who dream of stranger worlds. Why is it good to dream of stranger worlds? Well, I mean, I think for me personally, that's just my origin story, if you will. I grew up dreaming of stranger worlds. I grew up wanting the world to be weird. And the first stories that I ever embarked on for myself were just fantasies of finding that strangeness, fantasies of, you know, hiking hillsides and finding something that looked like a doorway, missing a key, and always just kind of looking for ways where maybe the normal gave way to the paranormal or the strange. And so for me, it's just kind of where my inspiration comes from is always believing that there's more than you can see. You just haven't known how to look for it. Well, and Victoria, people sometimes think of fantasy as escapist. So it's interesting that Shades of Magic, your series, is largely a queer fantasy and you rewrite the rules of power so that it's rooted in magic more than gender or sexuality. So I'm wondering if you could talk about your approach to fantasy as a commentary or a conversation about the reality we live in. Absolutely. I think I write two different kinds of fantasy. I write fantasy that uh, physically escapes, uh, repositions the rule, something like Shades of Magic. And then I write fantasy that is more set like a skin over the top of our existing world. I'm definitely always intrigued by the proximity of magic, by the idea that it's just a, a step away, even in something like Shades of Magic. While it's a world away, it's also only a touch and a doorway and, and an instant. And I like that idea. But when you're writing fantasy, you have the incredible privilege and opportunity to rewrite those rules, to redetermine what is norm. And I think it's a major disservice when we see fantasy worlds built from scratch in which all of the hierarchy, all of the power dynamics are exactly as they are in our own world. Because what that says to me is that the person writing that story already sees themselves in a position of power. They are the default. And so for me, what I'm most interested in is not erasing you know, inequity and inequality, there's always going to be a hierarchy whenever there is power, but simply about shifting like, okay, what if we design a world where power um, and control is not based on race and is based far less on sexuality and gender? And what if it's based on who controls physical magic? How does that change the dynamics? And, and how does the dynamics do the same? Where are the universals there? But for me, as a queer female author, you know, I, I want to be able to center, I want to be able to see myself in a position of power. And I want to be able to center readers who so often see themselves cast to the fringes of the narrative. 
That's so interesting, Victoria. Um, I'm interested in, in world building, and I, I usually think of world building in terms of what you kind of described earlier, like when you go on a hike and you imagine a doorway in the middle of a hill. But I've read that you interpret world building very differently than that in the sense that you say that you, you write primarily about outsiders and that in order to understand outsiders, you need to understand insiders. And then in order to, stand, to understand insiders, you have to understand the world that they are inside of, the world they inhabit. Exactly. So can you talk about how looking at outsiders and insiders through this lens then leads to the, the physical worlds you create on the page? Of course. I, I mean, I'm curious about what makes a person feel like they don't belong. You know, um, this goes back to my very first novel, The Near Witch. I was always interested in this concept of there's two kinds of outsiders. There's those of us who are born in a different place and then transported. I, I grew up moving around a lot, always felt like the physical outsider. And then those are of us who are born within a framework, within a community and feel othered within it. Like for my own personal experience, it was being a member of the queer community and taking a very long time to figure out that that was why I felt like I didn't belong. I, I didn't have vocabulary for it for a very long time. But when we take these characters and these figures who so often exist at the fringes, the outsiders, literally, and we center them in the narrative, all of a sudden we get to ask the questions of, okay, where don't you fit? And why don't you fit? And what is it that you are chafing against? Is it someone like Kel who feels like his power and his isolation make him feel like he doesn't belong in his found family because it wasn't choice? Is it someone who is his exact opposite, like Delilah Bard, who is technically an outsider in every way and yet can make herself an insider in everywhere she goes? And you start to examine power. You start to examine why does, why does somebody belong? Why don't they belong? What makes us feel lonely and afraid? What do we want and what do we fear? What are we willing to do to get the things we want? And it starts to provoke really interesting questions. And I think even though I build quite large worlds, I try to keep the questions very small because when I, I actually started my adult career writing a book called Vicious, which was about supervillains. And I think when we think of supervillains, we automatically think of the very large concept of world domination. And the problem with a concept like world domination or control or being the strongest is it's, it's not actually very easy for a person, a reader to wrap their minds around. Very few of us go through the world thinking that our goal in life is world domination. <laughs> but but most of us have felt slighted. Most of us have felt left behind or abandoned or like somebody wronged us. These are very personal, very intimate sensations. And so regardless of how big a world I'm building, I try to make the conflict very, very intimate because I want readers to be able to say, I know exactly how that feels. Now, you shouldn't be able to tell how one of the universe's greatest magicians feels, but if I can bring his power down to a sense of pure, awkward, neurotic isolation, then the reader has a lot easier time wrapping their head around that. I know that you read more than 100 books a year. And so I'm wondering what your favorite fantasy novels are, and especially those that illuminate the real world in a particular way that excites you. Oh, goodness. So yeah, I read a lot of books a year. I probably say that about a third of them are nonfiction. And then the two thirds are fiction. I read every 
form and format and genre. And I find that I tend to gravitate towards the weird. <laughs> um, like I just finished reading and blurbing two books, one called Gideon the Ninth, which comes out in September, which is essentially lesbian necromancers in space. That is one of the coolest books I've ever read. Um, and Magic for Liars, which is like a grown-up Harry Potter noir. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I'm a big fan of, of um, I like, I'm a big fan of things which exist in the in-between of definitions. I did a piece for NPR last year that was basically only dedicated to those books that didn't fit easy categories. There's a fantasy novel. I would call it fantasy. It's not fantasy, perhaps, in the way that Brandon Sanderson or Tolkien or fantasy, but it's it's fantastical and strange. And that's a book called The Library at Mount Char, um, which came out about three or four years ago, but just kind of sunk its teeth into me and never let go. There's a book called The Tiger's Daughter, which I always, by K. Arsenault Rivera, which I always liken to like a Miyazaki film gone rogue and and gayer and um but i i really like i hesitate to even say that i have favorites i think i have formatives i think i have stories which get their teeth in i mean growing up it was everything from harry potter to neverwhere by neil gaiman to Susanna clark's jonathan strange and mr norrell to holly black's coldest girl in cold town like i just want things to be ambitious and i want them to reach and maybe they're not gonna they're not gonna grab what they're reaching for every time, but I have so much respect for things which try. I would rather see someone try like no holds bar. There's a really fabulous series by an author named Nicholas Eames called King of the Wild. And the second one uh, is called Bloody Rose. And it's, it's this weird fantasy with essentially like rock band style mercenary groups like compete for like the attention in this rock band style. Um, and, and again, like I want things which are just no holds barred. I just read Middle Game by Shannon McGuire and, and fell head over heels in love for it. But if I had to try and explain it in anything less than a two page write up, I feel like I would fail miserably. And maybe that's the commonality between everything that I love is that it's not easily quantified or defined. That's so great, Victoria. I was writing down titles as you were saying them. I'm going to have to re-listen to, <laughs> to to go order all those books. Um, you know, fantasy. We we keep track of of what novels nanorama or what genres nanorama writers are writing in, and this probably won't surprise you, but fantasy is the most popular genre uh, year over year. And so, I'm interested to hear what your best writing advice is for fantasy authors in particular. Just to conclude the interview. Well, I would say that part of it is that um, to take a note from anime, one of the most often questions I get asked when I'm teaching for fantasy is how do you know which pieces of world building are essential to include? And so I, and I think it's because we can, as we're world building, we can kind of end up playing like Sims instead of writing a novel. We forget that there has to be conflict and plot and character, and we just kind of build the worlds. So I do really always kind of harken back to that thought process of, when you're describing something or when you're constructing something, is it relevant? And I always remind uh, up and coming writers that when you're writing a story, specifically fantasy, you are writing through a pair of eyes. Very, maybe you're writing omniscience, in which case that's a little harder, but omniscience has kind of fallen out of fashion. But if you're writing either first person or third person close, you are writing through a character's eyes, through a character's viewpoint. Now, in a, in a, you might have eight viewpoints, or you might have one or two, but 
every character in your novel is going to perceive the world in a different way. And so paying attention to the fact that in Shades of Magic series, Kel and Lila will never notice the same things in Red London. One of them has lived there all their lives and one of them has just arrived. And just even paying attention to what your characters notice and why, and then to keeping the details, keeping the the icebergs as tips, keeping the tips of the icebergs, the things which you choose to focus on reflective of a greater whole instead of creating the entire iceberg for for your audience. And the other piece of advice I would give is actually a bit more holistic for no matter what people are writing. This is a controversial piece of advice and I don't want it to come off as prescriptive. Again, I'm only speaking to what works for me. But one of the greatest challenges that any writer faces is finishing what they start. The vast majority of people who start a novel will never finish it. It's a, it's a grim statistic, but it's true. And and I'm up there. I, I love to quit things. I am constantly daunted by how difficult writing is. And so when I sit down to write a novel, I know the ending. And I know the ending because it transforms a desert into a field. It transforms this wasteland expanse that I can't see across, that I don't know where I'm going into a finite distance. And it gives me something to work toward. And on good days, it keeps me excited to get there. And on bad days, it keeps me from quitting. So those are the two pieces of advice I give. I love that metaphor for finishing. Thank you so much for talking with us, Victoria. This is really valuable advice. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Again, thanks, everyone. We hope you're enjoying your summer and that you enjoyed listening to or revisiting these episodes. We have some really exciting special new guests coming up starting September 6th as we enter our fourth year of right-minded, believe it or not. So while you're enjoying your summer, maybe also tell a friend about us. Help us continue to spread the word. In fact, Brooke, didn't we say that we were going to give a brand new BMW to whoever spreads the word the furthest? Yes, we totally said that, but we might have to downgrade it to like a CRV just because... It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, please go for it. Spread the word. Thank you so much. And remember that we are in your feed all August and then for the rest of 2021 and then for the rest of 2022. Forever. And we're extremely grateful for your listenership. Happy summer, everyone. <laughs>